This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I'm excited to be back uh, doing kind of a regular interview episode back with Dr. Wang and I together after the past few months with all the busyness of AANS and everybody running around uh, organizing and attending the meeting, kind of getting back to the basics today, just talking about life within neurosurgery. We are over the moon to be joined today by Dr. Hassan Zaidi. He is a junior faculty spine-focused surgeon at the Brigham, who's here today to talk with us about his experience getting started there and kind of getting into practice. Dr. Zaidi, for our listeners, welcome to the show. Why don't you say hello and introduce yourself? Hi, great. Thank you, Mike and JP, for inviting me for this. My name is uh, Hassan Zaidi. I'm a neurosurgeon at Brigham and Women's. I primarily do complex spine surgery, adult deformity. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you again. I'm transitioning now out of my junior faculty years. You know, I think they say that about five years out is when you sort of are now transitioning into more, uh, an older person. So um, just ending my fifth year in practice. Right. Hassan. You know, go ahead, go JP. Ahead. Go, go ahead. ahead. Hassan, it's it's really timely to have you on with us because you've begun to acquire the wisdom of being an attending. And we are in the season. All the new hires are out there and uh, folks are getting their feet wet as new attendings. And you've been through this process. It's fresh in your mind. Tell us about how it's been for you the last couple of years. Well, yeah, great, great comment, uh, Mike. So you know, everyone told me when I was starting off of residency that, you know, your juniors are difficult, but the most difficult years of your life are your first three to five years into practice. And I really didn't understand that until I went through both junior residency and now finishing up my junior faculty years. Um, you know, for most people, your first three to five years, you're, this is really your first job. My, my last job before becoming a neurosurgeon at Brigham was working my parents' donut shop in high school. I mean, that, that literally was my last job. And so, you know, you're getting used to being now a professional. And for many people, you know, there's this delayed gratification. You wait to start a family. For me personally, it was the years that I had my children. And so you're, you know, you're transitioning in, you know, different facets of your life. And, um, you know, especially if you didn't, you know, take a job at the institution that you trained at, um, you're operating often in a wholly new environment. You know, you're, you spent all this time impressing your uh, attendings as a resident, but then when you take your first job and you're working in a new environment, no one knows who you are. So you're really starting from scratch in terms of building your reputation. Um, and, and really no one is looking over your shoulder anymore. Uh, the thing about being a junior resident is that no matter what you're doing, there's layers of security to protect you and really frankly protect the patients uh, to make sure that things are double, triple checked. And this is the first time in your life that no one is there over your shoulder telling you what to do um, and providing guidance um, both in and out of the operating room. Well, Dr. Zaidi, you know, we, we kind of talked before we started with this uh, recording about what the theme and kind of what the mood of the neurosurgery podcast is. And maybe I didn't reinforce strongly enough, but as a listener of the show, you're aware this is where we really uh, bring the hard hitting questions and we delve deep into the psyche and the emotional drivers of our guests. So I think it would be remiss of me not to address the most interesting thing that you just brought up, which is working in a donut shop. 
I, I have to ask you with that, with that experience in your background, um, how did that prepare you for your life in neurosurgery or, or just what's it like, you know, did you have to wake up early and that got you ready for the crazy hours of residency? Did you innovate a, a, a new technical manipulation to get the donuts <laughs> just right? Talk with us about life in a donut shop. Well, yeah, that, you know, very similar to being a junior resident because, um, my parents would bring us to the donut shop at around three in the morning because that's when the baker would leave. Wow. Uh, he'd bake the donuts and then we would come in at three or four o'clock. Usually my sisters and I would be sleeping in the car or in the back room somewhere. Uh, and then my parents would be glazing the donuts between three to five or so. And then we'd come in and help box and make boxes and, you know, get everything else prepared. So Yes, very much a junior resident hours. It's the only corollary that I can find between neurosurgery and uh, and making donuts. Well, that that's hilarious, and and you know, thank you for sharing that impactful life experience with us. But but seriously, um, to to talk about the the purpose of today's conversation, it is really interesting to me. I always love talking with people in a state of transition, and and as you talked yeah. about moving from that protected residency mindset where you know there's the safety net to now being your own safety net, so to speak, even though there, there's always your senior partners, there's always uh, the chair or, to, or whomever you would turn to for complex cases. Um, I'm obviously coming to this conversation from the perspective of now a mid-level resident, and I haven't known life outside of that safety net environment, but it is a timely conversation. Today, You know, whenever this episode airs, we're talking on July 21st, 2022, and so all of us within neurosurgical training have just transitioned to new roles of increasing leadership and increasing authority and less of a safety net, so to speak, within the structure. So maybe you could delve more into what that adjustment was like, not just moving from residency training to being on your own, but maybe now with that transition from when the lack of safety net was new to now becoming more comfortable being on your own, so to speak. Yeah, you know, the very great question, you know, JP, when when you're a junior resident, um, I think the most important thing to take in is that a lot of what we do in neurosurgery, you want to turn it into muscle memory, not just in and out of the, but not just in the operating room, but also out of the operating room. So the majority of what we do, you want to be able to see volume and you want to be able to develop that muscle memory. And so most of what we do, um, most junior faculty members can reflexively spout out, you know, how to manage intracranial pressures and, you know, the, 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 how to place a pedicle screw, all those things that we don't think about. But often, you know, the few percentage of patients that you see that have much more complex disease, um, you want to have resources, people that you want to reach out to. So when you're thinking about joining a practice, um, you want to have mentors who are much more seasoned than you are because it's a lifelong learning process. And there's going to be cases that you probably have never seen before in residency that you're now going to be dealing with. So having friends and mentors that, you know, that you've uh, picked up along the way, um, I think is one of the most crucial aspects and not being fearful of asking for help, even in the operating room, if, if, if things are going to be challenging, uh, because, you know, like I said, it, it is a lifelong learning process. You're not going to have seen everything in residency. And uh, most of what we learn is not necessarily uh, what we learned in training. And most of who we become as surgeons sort of 
develops in your first few years in, in practice. So Dr. Zadie, tell us about the specifics, because I remember getting the same advice, which is that the first couple of years really are the hardest. So especially, you know, you're a spine surgeon, right? You're getting into the world of spine. You're doing complex cases. The first couple of years, what are the things, not in an abstract sense, in, in, in a very concrete sense that you felt to be the big challenges that you could share with our audience so they could be better prepared? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, looking at, you know, particularly the job, you're, you're set up for success before you even step into the hospital. Um, in my personal opinion, the job itself that you're taking specifically will dictate whether you're going to be successful or not. So, um, you know, many people actually leave their first job because most of us don't know what, uh, what to look out for when you're for looking for a new position after you graduate. Um, and it's really hard to know what job is right for you until you actually start the position. Um, that that process of finding a new job, it isn't like passing the SATs and, you know, you take your MCATs during a certain time or you publish a certain number of papers and you get into a good residency program. That process is a little bit opaque. So outside of looking for good partners and good help, um, understand um, you know, why you're being offered a certain position at an institution. Is there a, a, a neurosurgical culture at the institution that you're, you're already starting? Meaning, are there operative microscopes there that, you know, are up to par? I remember my very first case as an attending uh, was a revision microdiscectomy. And I did this at a, at a community hospital. Um, and, uh, you know, walking into the operating room, you know, I had graduated from BNI, which had uh, state-of-the-art, you know, microscopes. We had 12, you know, very fancy-looking microscopes in the OR. And I walk into this uh, community setting, and literally we had a old ENT microscope um, that had been around from the late 80s that used pulleys for, you know, balancing the microscope. Uh, and so, so things like that, you know, you, you really want to know, are you set up for the right position? Is, is this, you know, is this, you know, job that you're taking, is it setting you up for success? Um, and then, you know, looking at the institution itself, the reputation of the institution, um, the job that you're taking is the institution that you're going to be associated with, particularly financially healthy and also reputable in the community. Because if there's, um, you know, if you're joining a practice that has no historical legacy in neurosurgery, it is going to be a much more uphill battle in, in, in developing your practice. Um, uh, and so, you know, really looking at the job in and of itself before you even step into the hospital sort of will dictate um, largely how successful you're going to be in your junior years and how difficult your life is going to be. That's really interesting. I particularly struck by that story about the operating room microscope. By, by coincidence, I was just earlier today reflecting on differences in equipment between hospitals. I'm, I'm just reaching a point in residency where I've worked in a few hospitals around Chicago, and I was thinking about how different trays and different hospitals have all these different instruments that are subtly different, but kind of accomplish the same things, all the various sorts of rongeurs. And I was imagining one day when, when I go off to have a job, 
what it's going to be like to select my own tray and see what it's like at each hospital. But that's a far cry from dealing with an, an outdated, pulley operated microscope. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that, that's really interesting to think about the structure of your position and things down to the nuts and bolts, which instruments will be made available to you. But I wonder on the other side of that, you know, you need the tools to do your craft, but you also need the patience. And so something I'm always really curious about, and I try to ask as many people as I have the opportunity to do so, because I imagine it varies so uh, widely between institutions and between um, a given context or structure of a job. But what's it like when you arrive at an institution as a new attending, perhaps new to the city, to the state, and you're trying to build your practice clinically? You know, you, you have a subspecialty discipline that you're interested in. Where do you find your patients? Do you just take general call and establish a clinic and start meeting with people to try to build referrals? But I mean, th those are all hand wavy generalities. That's about the extent that I understand things from from my level. But how do you really get get out there and try to build the clinic with the patients and the kind of cases that you're trying to see in these early years of your attendinghood? Um, you know, I have to tell you, JP, you're first few months in practice are very depressing because you go from, mm. you know, your chief year where you're doing literally the best cases in neurosurgery of all time every single day. You know, you're right. doing acute pelvises and lateral approaches and complex tumors. And, and, and these are being handed to you on a silver platter by your attendings uh, to being in an empty clinic. <laughs> so it is a slow, slow process. Um, and, you know, it, I can't tell you how it works for other people, but for me personally, really what it comes down to is as simple as just being a good doctor. I mean, you just have to be a good doctor and think like a good doctor and be nice to your patients and the patients would come. My, my biggest referral sources are my own patients, uh, you know, somebody I operated on or someone that I, I just counseled on non-operative treatment methods. You know, I spent extra time sitting to them, talking to them about why their back pain and black disc disease is, is not a suitable candidate for surgery. And, and patients appreciate that. And they send their, you know, their, um, you know, their moms and their dads and their cousins and their, you know, landscapers or whoever it may be to you because you listened and you were a good doctor and you made, you know, all the type of things that they teach you in medical school, sit at eye level, talk to the patient because you can build a, a practice through good word of mouth as long as you're a good doctor. Um, the other thing, you know, is you being good to your referring providers. You know, the old um, saying of availability, affability, and ability, um, it's really true. Um, you know, you have to be available. Um, you know, you really only get one chance with a referring provider. Uh, and so, you know, you really have to make the most of it. If you're the kind of person that, um, you know, only works nine to three, it's going to be very difficult uh, to or pick up the phone between nine and three. It's going to be very difficult to, to build a practice. So you have to make yourself available 24-7 and you have to find a way of balancing that with your personal life. Um, you know, I've changing diapers and also picking up, you know, your phone call from a primary care doctor who needs you to see a patient urgently you're going to have to find some way of, of, of balancing those things. And, um, and then affability, you know, you be yourself. And if you're a nice person, if you're not a nice person, don't be yourself then, uh, you know, you have to be nice to your referring doctors and then ability also, you know, having good 
carefully selected patients that you operate on and having good clinical outcomes, it really speaks for itself. Those patients are your, you know, your, your best source for, you know, uh, developing inertia in your practice. So Dr. Zadie, I love what you're saying because I, I think it's so true. And, um, you know, we've hired a number of new faculty here at University of Miami. So shout out to uh, Shelby Burks and Greg Basil. And, you know, they're starting to practice and everybody's concerned about this starting out period. And, and I was told by a very famous neurosurgeon to not worry about that, that it will just come. And so don't even try to wrap your mind around that. But people are worried. And so let's get to that. What What is your commentary on, let's say, social media use? Do you do that? Um, me personally, not so much. Um, but, it, you know, I think it is a great avenue to be able to get yourself out there. I don't necessarily think it's going to help build uh, a clinical practice as much as a national reputation, uh, but um, I personally don't. Yeah, so it's very interesting, right? Because I, I think it is a different conversation between spine and cranial because Rick Komatar, one of my partners, has this amazing book and method for, for garnering referrals. And I mean, he is he is highly disciplined. It is yeah. not trivial what he does. <laughs> and I feel like spine's different because in brain surgery, you're sort of more looking for those rare, I mean, there aren't that many brain tumors or, you know, epilepsy patients, whatnot. So you have to get as many of them as you can, right? But in spine, it's the, the patients, there are lots of them, right? But you've got to filter them. And it's this process of like the big or small aperture. And here you are, you're in, you go from the BNI, which is an amazing place. I'm actually flying there tomorrow. And you go to Boston, which has to be one of the most competitive arenas, just it's a, it's not a huge city. Uh, it's it's a very very savvy and educated. Or they think they're educated. They think they're smarter population of patients. And there's a lot of doctors and there's a lot of history of story institutions, right? I mean, it's it's like the opposite of of Phoenix or Miami in some ways. So when you when you landed there, like what were the tools you used other than just being a good doctor? Because obviously you're already very successful. How did you? How did you build the practice? Did you really depend on the folks at the BNI, like Mike Groff and Nino, to send you the patients, or did you go out and give talks? What did you actually do? Yeah, you know, a lot of I, I have to say I'm very lucky for being at the institution that I am, and a lot of the success, and you know, I'd like to say that it was me, but it's really built by the institutional reputation, um, and so that was worked heavily in my favor. Um, the institution itself has a legacy for neurosurgery within the Boston um, uh, region. So, you know, it goes back to what I said, you know, earlier is that the, the job itself that you're looking at will set you up for success. And um, you have to be a good doctor still. I mean, it's not like uh, the things are handed to you, but uh, setting, yourself, setting yourself up for success is largely dependent on the institution. And MGB, Mass General Brigham, um, is a, a financially very healthy institution. So there's a tremendous amount of resources in helping develop a referring uh, referral source. So, um, you know, there's actually this concept of physician liaisons uh, as people who chauffeur you around and help you meet other referring providers uh, that I believe a lot of other major institutions have. Um, you know, because of how healthy financially MGB is, uh, they're able to provide these resources to help you network with referring providers in the local community. 
And, um, you know, those things I felt helped me tremendously, but really what made a big difference is going back to what I was saying is, is if you're not a good doctor, if you're not a likable person, if you don't pick up your phone, um, no matter how good of a setup you may potentially have to be successful, you will not be successful in my, in my personal opinion. Well, Dr. Zadie, I think uh, kind of in the vein of cliches being cliches for a reason, it would be remiss to have you on the show talking about this transitional period in your career, uh, moving from training to independence and now leaving that new phase of independence in practice, not to ask you to look back and, and maybe see if there were any missteps or, or any uh, deviations from a planned course along the way. So for the sake of our listeners who may be finishing residency this year, who may be in the midst of their first job right now, getting their feet on the ground and, and trying to find some sense of balance. Um, looking back on these past five years, can you think of any easily identified events or uh, decisions that come to mind where you wish you had handled something a bit differently that, that you can share with our listeners so perhaps they could avoid that same misstep? Uh, very good question. I'm going to have to spend a lot more time thinking about that. But uh... You know, it, those are challenging years. These are more the, one of the most difficult years of your life. And um, um, I can't think of any one particular moment or incident. But uh, what I would say is, no matter how difficult these years are, um, I kept on thinking about what Dr. Spetzer would always tell us is, no matter what you do, no matter how big of a neurosurgeon you want to be, you're never going to be a great neurosurgeon, a technician, or provider unless you have a good, happy home life. So make sure that you you know, don't lose sight of, uh, of that fact. And, uh, I'm very lucky to have, you know, a loving wife and now two and a third kid on the way. So they've kept me very, very balanced, but, um, uh, those five years are, are challenging and, um, you know, you gotta, you know, if you want to be a great neurosurgeon, you have to have a happy home life. Well, Hassan, we appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. I can't um, emphasize more than what you've already said, how important that piece is. All of us that uh, work daily in the OR owe a great debt of gratitude to our families for keeping things uh, running on the home front when we're busy helping patients. So thanks again for having uh, the time to take to, to come with us on this journey from making donuts to... Uh, working in Phoenix to, to now your new job. Uh, very, very happy to meet you virtually. Hope to see you at our national meeting soon. Great. Thank you again. Really a pleasure to talk to you, Mike and JP. Really appreciate it. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.